0: Well, good morning, Covenant family. Good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome as well to those of you who are joining us online and watching from home. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me invite you to turn to the very last book of the scriptures revelation we're going to be in chapter three today is the final week of seven week series that we've been in entitled misdirection i hope this has been a blessing to you i hope it's been a challenge to you i hope it's been encouraging to you and today's probably not going to start so encouraging but hang with me because i promise you it ends that way i really really do you know if you live life long enough you're going to come to realize kind of an axiomatic principle of life Things can seem good, things can look good, and simultaneously not be good. We know that uh, for any of us who've ever had a health condition that we've suddenly been diagnosed with. I actually had a a friend in in high school, uh, brilliant, beyond brilliant woman, uh, went on to do graduate and postgraduate work, doctorate in psychology, was a clinical psychologist, very successful for many years, a wife and a mother, and then one day got a diagnosis A rapidly aggressive cancer had invaded her body, gone to multiple parts of it. And within eight weeks of that diagnosis, she was no longer with us. She was with Jesus. And the interesting thing is the day before the appointment, she likely would have said, I feel fine. There's a difference between seeming good, between looking good, and between actually being good. And the insidious irony of that is that you're most tempted to avoid your annual physical when you feel fine, aren't you? Like, I'm feeling pretty good right now, and I've got an appointment a week from tomorrow, and I've been honestly thinking about canceling it. Like, and, and the, uh, some of the wives in the room are like, yeah, that's because you're a dude. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, but, but I have. Like, I've been like, I, because I feel fine, right? That's the temptation, isn't it? Because we forget sometimes there's a difference between feeling good and actually being good. And, and churches, by, uh, by contrast, are, are more tempted toward this kind of thing as well, when things seem prosperous. And I think one of the big ideas we're going to get from today's message from Jesus to the church at Laodicea is this, don't confuse image with reality. Don't confuse the way things look with the way things are. Image is not unimportant. Uh, We're working to improve that around here. I'm very thankful for Pastor Dave and his emphasis on that, on excellence. There, there are some things that needed to be done here. That's good, but there's a, a real marked difference. Like if things aren't good underneath, it really doesn't matter how things look because in the long run, everything will eventually fall apart. And that was precisely the situation that was occurring at a church called Laodicea. Now, when we talk about the city, this ancient city, much of it 2,000 years after these words were written is still underground. It is still a massive archaeological site, mostly unexcavated. But what has been on earth is, is very, very telling. It reveals one of the most opulent, affluent cities that existed in the ancient world. Personal homes have already been excavated on this site that were measured at between 3,000 and 4,000 square feet. Now, that's pretty big, even for the 21st century. But for the ancient world, where most homes were two rooms, maybe three at most, And average just a few hundred feet. This city boasted the equivalent of basically an entire population of people who had their own personal Biltmore estate. That's how wealthy and opulent this was. Centralized water systems were brought bringing water into the homes. We're talking indoor plumbing in the first century. And then once you stepped outside those homes, you saw one of the most affluent cities in history to that point. Laodicea sits on this really high, even to this day, elevated plain. And on that plain back then, you would have seen shops and businesses and merchants selling all of the latest fashions and all of the most recent technological advances and as a cultural center it was a the only city in the region to boast not one but two amphitheaters attendance of which if they both had been full was over 20,000 people so a lot of art a lot of culture a lot of expression a lot of wealth a lot of op- opulence a lot of education and a lot of influence and then within that larger landscape you would find the things you would find in any of the, any of these other cities at that time period you would find Pagan temples, you would find opportunities for emperor worship, and you would also find groups of Christian churches. And this particular church, like the city around it, was filled with very wealthy people, and they, as a result, had rich financial resources. If they wanted to do it, they could probably afford to do it. That wasn't a bad thing, but the result of, of having that and then subsequently relying on those resources was a church that had become ambivalent toward God's mission. They'd become at ease in their city. They had become indistinguishable from the culture around them due to their reliance, not on the Lord and the following of the Spirit, but on on their financial riches. And when you are no different than the culture around you, that makes you spiritually irrelevant. Let me say that again. In the way that you react to problems, in the way that you handle money, in the way that you look at your marriage, in the way that you view the world, if you are indistinguishable from the way the world looks at those things, you are simultaneously spiritually unremarkable. And that was the deadly danger in Laodicea. It's the danger that Jesus, thankfully, loves them enough to point out to them. That's the good news. Jesus loves the spiritually irrelevant, amen? Jesus loves everybody. There's nobody in the world that Jesus doesn't love. And he loves them so much that he writes a very strongly worded letter through his servant, John, to wake them up from their spiritual complacency. For years, they had apparently thought themselves sufficient. Um, You ever take a fish face selfie? Don't raise your hand. That's basically what this church did every day, all day, just We'll get an angle. Oh, let me get an angle. Oh, let me get the light behind me. Oh, let me do this. And this was the result of that. Verse 17 for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. That's the corporate equivalent of, I feel fine. I'm good. And so Jesus, because he loves them, holds up an x-ray and says, Look, look at these malignancies. You are a sick, sick church. And I do not say that because I want you discouraged. I say that because I love you and I want you healed. I want you whole. I want you to become everything that you can be. Stop relying on your riches. In Matthew 19, there's this encounter that Jesus has with a rich young ruler, and it ends with that young man turning away from the Lord, walking away. And in response to that, Jesus says the following, "'It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle,' than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus was not saying in in that verse that it's a sin to be rich. The biographies of people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Lydia and Erastus of Corinth and a host of other people in scripture demonstrate to us that there were people in the Bible and thus there can be now who are both very wealthy and simultaneously very godly. But the warning still stands, great riches can misdirect your confidence and your faith and your allegiance. And that way money really isn't a whole lot different from alcohol. It's not a sin to have it. It's not a sin to use it. It's not a sin to consume it, but its influence is potent and sometimes even dangerous to the soul. And in the case of Laodicea, it resulted in a a complacent church that was simply content to blend in to the opulence around them. Amy and I know something of what that's like. We lived for 11 years in Howard County, Maryland. During the bulk of the time we were there, I don't know if this is demographically still accurate, but back then it was known as the third most affluent county in North America. The only two counties in front of it were Montgomery County, Maryland, just to the south, and some county out in Southern California that I can't remember the name of. And and we kind of felt the weight of that. Single-family homes on average were north of $800,000. Family incomes Tended to be just above 200,000, a lot of opulence, a lot of wealth, a lot of kids on Ivy League tracks, a lot of Mercedes and BMWs and those kinds of things. Again, nothing wrong with any of that except that simultaneously, we found during our 11 years that that was one of the most spiritually empty places we have ever lived. Because when you get to a point that you rely on your earthly resources, that's the temptation. I want to live a life that's comfortable. Listen, Anybody normal would prefer a mattress to a two-by-four, all right? I I get that. But if comfort is your number one priority, you will, it is almost guaranteed, live a life that is spiritually unremarkable. And and that's what we're learning here. The greatest temptation is to be indistinguishable from the culture around you. That's the attitude that Jesus is calling out of of the culture at Laodicea, and and we're going to find here three ways to to avoid and escape the misdirection of being spiritually irrelevant. It starts with this, be honest with yourself. Just be honest with yourself. Look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, to lay out say, you, you may think you're, you're okay, but your self-assessment is just as irrelevant as is your existence in this great city, because while you're taking the selfies and talking about how good you look, the really only true assessment is mine. It comes from me, and Jesus says that because of his own identity. He describes himself here as as faithful and true. In other words, his life story and his words are worthy of unquestioned belief. When he says something, we should believe it, and especially that should be true when he says something to us about us. He's the beginning of God's creation, which simply means that God created the world in Jesus and thereby. All reality has its beginning in Jesus, making him ultimately trustworthy. Jesus, brothers and sisters, doesn't have opinions. He only speaks the truth. And so that's something we can rely upon. He speaks truth, and he speaks truth because he is truth. And the hard truth that he wants to communicate here to this church is you are not cold or hot, you are lukewarm. Now, even without context, that's an easy one to figure out. Some of you remember this morning, probably about a half hour after you set your coffee down, you go back to it, and you thoughtlessly do this, and then what happens? You start fighting your gag reflex, all right? And I know some of y'all are cold brew people, and one of these days you'll repent, because God meant coffee to be (laughs) freaking hot, okay? I'm just telling you. But now, if you're cold brew, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. You're just weird, all right? But but even cold brew people, you know, right? You you don't you don't sit it down for a half an hour. This thing called entropy takes place, and the energy in the cup itself starts to slow down, which is a way of saying that the heat goes down. And now it's not piping hot. You can't even, you know, those beans that you smelled when you were grinding them up. Y'all do grind your own beans, right? Y'all, some some of y'all need discipline. I'm telling you, and, and so. You know, you, all that, that wonderful smell, that wonderful all that's gone now. You, it just it just tastes nasty. It's like you could drink paint thinner and it would taste better than this. And, and maybe if you're not a coffee drinker, maybe last time you took your kids to McDonald's, anybody ever done that? I will admit it. I have taken my children to McDonald's. My daughter loves McDonald's to this day. She's 11 years old. Every Sunday can I go to McDonald's? It's coming today. I know it. And one of the things that we love to do together is we'll get something for her and her brother because her mother and I really shouldn't eat there anymore. Okay. It's just not good for us. But I'll tell you what I have a hard time resisting is when, when those French fries come through that magic window, right? And they are right out of the fryer. I mean, this is manna from heaven kind of stuff. This, they're going to be serving this. And my daughter and I go, okay, here we go. And I go, parent tax. And she goes, sister tax. And, and we just, we're, we're just munching on this stuff. And we're just going on and on and on about how good this stuff is. You ever eaten a fry 20 minutes after it was out of the fryer? Like, what do they pick, packing peanuts and drop them into the deep fryer? They're nasty, aren't they? How about a McDonald's milkshake? You ever let that thing sit on the counter for longer than about an hour? You can taste the chemicals in it. It's bad. Anything that's just allowed to sit like that and it gets to this place that that would rightly be called lukewarm and it's just not tasting very good. Laodicea... Is listening to that about themselves. This lukewarm statement would have elicited the same kind of reaction you've probably had to a cold McDonald's french fry or an already cooled down cup of coffee because with all of its wealth and culture and privilege, Laodicea, the one thing it did not have was a good water supply. It had to bring its water in through a very sophisticated aqueduct system that brought it from uphill and downhill. Uphill was a place called Hierapolis. Hierapolis had hot springs and they were noted for those hot springs. Down, Uh, stream from them was a city called Colossae. Paul wrote a a letter to a church to the Colossians. That church was located in that city, and they had ice cold water that they were known for. Laodicea didn't have its own inherent water supply, and so it had to be trucked in from both directions. And as you can imagine, in a place where you didn't have refrigeration or any way to keep it warm or cold, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's not hot, it's lukewarm. It's not cold, it's lukewarm. And so what you end up with is the same thing we have here in Shepherdstown, nasty water, right? I'm sorry. It is just a little bit nasty, but we drink it. Jesus is saying, you are like your city's water supply. You're unremarkable. You're unimpressive. you maybe even just a little bit nasty, certainly irrelevant. And then he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says to this church, it's his first introduction to this church, you think yourself to be well. In fact, you make me want to fight my gag reflex. Now, you don't say that about something attractive. You don't say that about something that tastes good. That this is what you make me want to do. It's a shocking statement. But now that he's got their attention, he goes on. He says in verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Every time you look in a mirror, every time you take a selfie, you're so self-absorbed, you don't see your own fatal flaws. Your prosperity has led you into a spiritual coma. And so in the middle of all this, this place that was known, not for its water, but for its luxurious mineral baths, he says, your spiritual walk is characterized by misery and wretchedness. In a place where it is known to be the the first ancient eye doctors applied healing salve, he says, spiritually, you're blind. And there's no one other than me that can fix this problem. In a place where the latest fashion made this city the ancient version of Rodeo Drive, he says, spiritually, you are naked. And it's all because you've deluded yourself into thinking, I've got enough. Look at me. Look, Look at that angle. Oh, that's a good angle right there. Look, I have everything I need. And here's the dire warning, and I think it's probably a timely one for us as a church family. There is nothing on earth so wretched, so empty, so destitute as a self-made church. That's not something the Lord wants. Kerry Newhoff rightly warns pastors, but I think this could, could apply to leadership at any level. If you teach and you're in a classroom full of children, you're leading those children or maybe you administer in a school or maybe you're CEO or CFO in front of me or watching me right now or you're you're a business owner and you want to hear something about leadership I read something from Kerry just a few weeks ago he says the ultimate test of a leader's character really doesn't come in reaction to failure it comes in reaction to success and that's true in your personal life your family's blessed and doing well job is secure promotions are imminent everything looks good those are the moments when especially in our American context we're tempted to do this. Look at look at me. That's when you take the selfies, isn't it? Come on. I've done it. Look at me and my wife in South Florida in January. You know, look, at, we all want to do that kind of thing. Say, look at me, but but when it becomes a lifestyle, when it becomes a, a way of relying on another person, those are the moments when the hardest thing in the world for you to do is to accept the hard truth about yourself. Jesus says, if you want to escape spiritual irrelevance, be completely honest about yourself, warts and all, and secondly, be eager to repent. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So he's contrasting the the material, temporary wealth of the city that this city and church is relying on with true, eternal wealth. And he say, if you need to turn away from the former in order to get the latter that's what you need to do. And, and each of these examples, whether it's the gold or the white garments or the eye salve, all of those are metaphors for repentance. Jesus' words here are an echo, really, uh, of the prophets. We're told in Isaiah 55, 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Because repentance by definition has two sides to it. When you repent, you are inherently and simultaneously turning away from one thing and turning towards something else. And so Jesus is saying, I've described the thing that I need you to turn away from. Here's what you need to turn to. So for Laodicea, turn away from self-reliance because you might be materially rich, but you are spiritually bankrupt your pockets are full but your soul is empty and this is what makes you irrelevant you don't physically possess anything that every other person in this city doesn't already possess they're not going to look at you as significant they're not going to be attracted to you they're not going to find you as remarkable because they're not going to find you any different than they are and the reason that is true of you is because you don't have me You don't have me. Now, before we too quickly pile on judgment on this church, let's consider a couple of things. All right. First is it's easy, particularly when we're tempted to kind of give in to this Western notion of always being jealous, always aspiring to something bigger, to to a sense that we look at people above us in income or above us in position or above us in influence and we we th- well, they must have cheated to get there. They don't really deserve that position or I should be in that position. And so it'd be really easy for us to look at this church and look at these people and look at this city right now and go, yeah, that's just how rich people are. They're just, they're, they're, just, they're haughty and, and they're greedy and, and they're, ha- they're self-reliant and they're, and they're proud. They're just, it, that, you know, that's just what happens to you when you get filthy, stinking rich. Careful, careful. Because if we want to talk about who's rich, and who's not, a lot of us are going to fall in that category even though you may not think you're going to. Let's fast forward 20 centuries and just ask this question. How many people in front of me, and you don't have to raise your hands, live in a household that on an annual basis brings in more than $25,000 a year? I'm going to say 95% plus of the people in front of me, the people watching from home, you're above that. You know what that means? That means 75% of the people in the world, you're doing better than they are. Let's take that to fifty thousand a year still not a real whole lot of money right? and probably less of you but still i would imagine living in the panhandle you can't live in the panhandle it, you just you can't live here uh if you if your income is not at least that unless you maybe don't, i don't know special circumstances you don't have a mortgage or something else going on you, you got to be really there or above so i would say even the super majority of you so if you're in a household that makes over fifty thousand a year You know all this talk about the evil 1%? That's you. That's me. That's us. 99% of the people on planet Earth are worse off than you are. And they're worse off than me. We are the very rich that are being addressed here. We live in a culture with a level of affluence that is unparalleled in world history. Here's the other thing, though, you need to keep in mind. You ready for this? Jesus doesn't hate rich people. He loves them. And we see that proof in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. Come to me. I say these hard things because i love you paul will echo this in romans chapter 2 he will remind us that what leads us to repentance is the kindness of god it's because he is good and he wants good for all of you and for me and so so the question then is where do we need to repent that's going to be different probably for different individuals as a church we probably need to answer that question that's an elder issue pray for us as we are constantly asking that question what creature comforts physical emotional are holding us back and, and making our lives unremarkable in the eyes of Jesus? In what parts of your life do you lack any sense of spiritual urgency or desire to get better? The answer to that malformity is to hear the truth, to accept the truth, and to respond in repentance. Accept loving discipline. And, and sometimes that comes from other people who love you. Sometimes it comes from your pastor's who love you enough to confront you. Sometimes that comes from another brother or sister in a small group or maybe even another Christian brother or sister who's also a, a part of your blood family. Don't bristle at the loving confrontation from a brother or sister or when it comes from someone that you know loves you and wants good for you. Listen, take a long, hard look at yourself. Be eager to repent. And then remember this last thing too, because repentance isn't just turning away from something, it's turning to something else. Number three, respond to Jesus. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches here's another metaphor for Jesus called to repent i'm knocking i'm knocking and the promise if you open the door i'll come in and eat now that the significance of that statement probably landed on its first century hearers a lot better and a lot more clearly than it would land on us. But let me back up for you. That meal in the first century was likely just an extended version of the Lord's Supper. What we practice here uh, at this moment with, you know, individualized cups, and God willing, and in just a few short months here, we'll be back to sharing communally together. But on occasion, we augment that, don't we, with a family meal. Everybody brings something. Everybody. Boy, I miss those days, don't you? I'm ready to get fat again. Like off of y'all's food. Like that's 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 greatest fringe benefit in the world being a preacher. Y'all cook good. I mean, it's amazing. Can't wait to get back to those days. Well, in the ancient world, that's the way it always was. You would you would have the Lord's Supper, and then there would be this meal that that would happen uh in in conjunction with that. And oftentimes they would just see the two as as conflated with each other. And so the Lord's Supper is what? It's unity with the Lord, unity with each other, right? And this, and this meal is something you share. And, and even in our century, we don't too closely align that. But can we be honest? If, if you've got a problem with somebody and it hasn't been worked out yet, or you really, you've got a lot of anger in your heart toward another person, or you just don't like somebody, I, I'm betting, just get that person in your, in your head right now, okay? I'm going to bet the last thing on your mind is, hey, we should go out to eat with them sometime. Just, that's not a thought, is it? We should share a meal sometime. So think of the significance of that. Jesus is saying to them, look, we're at odds here. You're you're separated, but here's the promise. Here's the promise. The broken fellowship will be restored if you'll just open the door. Just open the door, and you will no longer be irrelevant. You will no longer blend in to the point of being indistinguishable from the city where I've placed you to make a mark. And that's the question that, that really each one of us has to ask. It's a question our church has to ask too. We've come a long way. We've got all kinds of... We grew through a pandemic. I I have no idea short of the grace of God how that happened. God has been good. God has been gracious. And so we have people that we didn't have four or five years ago. We have other kinds of resources that we didn't have four or five years ago. And, And so here... We're at a place now where we could really go the way of Laodicea if we're not spiritually attuned to what God is doing in our midst. Here's the question we have to ask. Do we see all these resources as tools Jesus has given us to advance his kingdom or are they going to become little gods that we rely on so that we can rest and be comfortable people? And to answer that question, you've got to answer another one. Where's Jesus right now? Is he on the inside? Is he embraced? Is he loved? Is he honored? Is he enthroned? Is he followed? Or is he on the outside knocking, calling for entry to the very heart that claims to know him with the label Christian, to the very entity, corporately the body that bears his name? If he's on the inside, here's the promise. He will sit with me on my throne so here, in, as in other places we've seen in this whole series, we, we are told that the faithful will have a share of Jesus' ruling authority. Remember Thyatira a few weeks back? Blue-collar town. What a thing to say to a bunch of blue-collar people who've never really managed anything except just making sure they, they got to the time clock on time to say to them, you will reign with me. And this is, this is where we contrast Jesus' message to them with this message to the Laodiceans, a very rather frightening contrast. It's the blue collar, lower social and economic class folks in this context who are on their way to the throne and the wealthy, white collar, powerful, affluent folks who at this moment at least are on a one way road to irrelevance. And the difference is not in the resources they have or what they have in their banking app or what kind of clothes they wear. The difference is Jesus. It's all the difference in the world. And so the singular answer is to run to Jesus. Give him everything. And Jesus' response here is, if you'll give me everything, I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. C.T. Studd was a British missionary, and he said this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. You've got to be willing to take a long, hard look at yourself. We don't like doing that, do we? We don't. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't like doing it as a pastor because that means you have to confront people that you love. You have to do that. I'd rather preach to people that aren't in the room. I'd rather tell you how evil the culture is out there and how horrible it is because that would get the amen corner going and we'd all be you know, excited about how good we are and how horrible everybody else is. But the thing you've got to do is you've got to look at yourself. Jesus says, you're you're following me. You're not following those people. Whoever those people, you're following me. Take a long, hard look at yourself. I'm reminded of a a fable about a young pastor who went to this church in Kentucky. I pastored several years in Kentucky, so I have felt the pain that I'm about to describe for you. Uh, He noticed uh, first Sunday that some folks were out back smoking and so he preached on the dangers of addiction to tobacco and the next morning the deacons they kind of function like elders in this particular church they called him they said pastor tobacco is the number one cash crop of our tithing people don't talk about that ever again he's like well okay i'm learning more about my community the next week he found all kind of empty bourbon bottles because it's kentucky all over and then he started learning about people that were struggling i mean we're not talking about somebody that enjoys a glass at night while they're watching a game or something. We're talking about people addicted. And so the next Sunday, he talked about the, the dangers of alcohol. They called another meeting. Pastor, you, you got to be careful. Our tithers, they're, they're employed by the local distillery. Well, as it happened, the very next week was, was the first week in May. Y'all know what that is in Kentucky? That's Derby week. And so he decided, well, this is how to be relevant. I just want to talk systemically about the dangerous systemic effects of gambling. Pastor, you can't do that. Derby has been the pride of our county for decades. And so finally on the fourth Sunday, he preached on the evils of the the Japanese violating U.S. territorial fishing waters in the Bering Sea. And everybody loved it. We can't address sins of the people not in the room and ignore our own. And Jesus tells us that because he loves us. He tells us that because he loves us. When the congregation becomes comfortable to the point that we're relying on our own way of life rather than the God who gave us life, that's where the, fl- the switch is flipped. That's the moment. You can trace it back. If a church dies, trace it back to a moment like that because that's when you become irrelevant. That's when you become irrelevant. There is a loving Savior who bled for you, who says, I'm still knocking, and if you'll let me in, you're not going to like everything I tell you about yourself. But if you will open your heart to me, there's a far better life that awaits you. Brothers and sisters, with all the love in my heart, let me encourage you. Don't let anything, I mean anything, hold you back from that. Don't live a life that is comfortable but unremarkable. Give Him everything. Give him everything. Some of you might need to do that for the very first time today. You have never, maybe you've been in church. Who knows? I don't know what your spiritual background is, but perhaps you've come to the realization today that I've never really been born again. I've never had my life changed. I've never truly given my life to Jesus. And for some of you, you've just been a long way from home for a while. And the Savior is inviting you back into the house, back to that communal meal, back into fellowship with him back into a life that will be, because of his grace and for his glory, spiritually significant. Don't let anything hold you back from seizing that with all of your might. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that everywhere in your word that you're speaking to your people, even in in texts like this, which can seem quite harsh, that we can feel a sense of your love. It's almost like a parent that's dealing with an errant child, Lord, we, we're, we've been angry with our children, we've been worried about our children, we've been, but, the, but, but even the child, if they listen, they can hear love, they can hear concern, they can hear a parent that would go to the ends of the earth for them. And Lord, I believe we've just heard that in your words to a church spoken 2,000 years ago, that you love us all, that you want us all around that table. And so, Lord, may we let go of self-reliance. May we let go of this horrid ideal that it's about how much money we have or how educated we are or anything other than our connection to Jesus Christ. And may we not settle for being indistinguishable from the world, from being irrelevant, Father. From this moment, may these people and may we together as a church family go where you send us And may we do it with a passion, Father, that you have given us. Make us hot. Make us cold. Ready us for the days ahead. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.